honey, I love a luxurious moment, but I also love luxury that like doesn't cost quite so much. Then I discovered Quince and it was a total game changer. They have so many different items to choose from. They have washable silk tops and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. And the best part is that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. Thanks, Quince. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Indulge in affordable luxury, honey. Go to quince.com slash curious for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash curious to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash curious. My makeup routine changes every day. Sometimes I'm giving you full glam, but sometimes I like a no-makeup makeup look or like literally just like almost literally no makeup. It just depends. Whether you like fresh-faced, full glam, or somewhere in between, there's a Thrive Cosmetics product for you. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. They're made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, they are high-performance, and they have uncompromising standards. One of my personal favorite products is the Brilliant Eye Brightener. I love this product because it can be used in so many different ways. It can be a highlighter stick that's made to brighten and open up your eyes. They support amazing causes, including the LGBTQIA community and racial and social justice. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com curious. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash curious for 20% off your first order. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. Earthquakes, dams, groundwater, volcanoes, caves. Oh my. We've covered them all on the show. And all of these topics have led us to this moment. And also like my existential fear of tsunamis and earthquakes. And like, I don't even go in underground parking garages in case there's an earthquake. Like has also led us to this moment because I need to know how to survive a tsunami if I ever found myself one in one. So today we're talking tsunamis. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tina Dura. She is Assistant Professor of Natural Hazards at Virginia Tech. She specializes in subduction and paleoseismology, which we will absolutely ask her to define for us a little later. She investigates past earthquakes and tsunamis and uses those findings to assess future coastal hazards. Today, I'm asking, what makes tsunamis so disastrous and how do I survive one? So, Tina, actually, excuse me, Dr. Tina Dura, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. So happy to be here. Your hair is stunned. I was going through this phase where I tried not to like compliment our academic guests, you know, because I'm trying to like, but I am a hairdresser first. And I realize that it's not possible for me to not compliment people when they have like really fierce, like it could be earrings, hair, like whatever. I just can't help it. And the hair is really rocking today. So I just had to say it. Um, wait, but how are you? You doing good? I'm doing great. Yeah. And are you joining us from Virginia today? I am. I'm in Blacksburg, Virginia, Virginia Tech. Now, I don't know about you in Virginia, but here in Texas, we have experienced a summer of extreme weather. Um, Where in the world were people under tsunami advisories this summer? The most recent one that 
probably was was heard about around the world was the Hunga Tonga volcanic eruption that created a tsunami in the South Pacific. And that created a local tsunami in Tonga that was up to 50 feet tall. No. Yes, it was it was a big event and it was um, quite unexpected in a way. So there were underwater landslides that occurred with the eruption. The water was displaced above the volcano and basically, you know, spread out in that ripple effect and, and uh, affected coastlines in Tonga and also reached the west coast of the U.S., Chile, uh, et cetera. But they were quite small waves by the time it reached the U.S. But it was a really powerful eruption and tsunami that went along with that. So, like, how at risk is anyone on the coastline of a tsunami? Is it like everyone or is it more of like a Pacific ring of fire thing? Like, who's most at risk? So I would say the the people most at risk are communities, coastal communities on subduction zones. So these really big faults where two tectonic plates are colliding, um, those can create the largest tsunamis that can displace the most water and create the highest waves over the largest area. Um, and so places in Japan, like you mentioned, uh, the Chilean coastline, the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., Alaska, of course, uh, South Pacific has some subduction zones. So anywhere where you have a big fault like that is where you can get the largest tsunamis. Should we all be super fucking scared or is it more just the subduction zone people? I think that the subduction zone people have the most urgent need to be prepared. Let's say not scared, but make sure you're prepared. Yes. Um, You have to, you know, understand the local geology, understand any local tsunami sources, and then also understand um, let's say on the coast of California, these distance source tsunami possibilities that could come from Japan or um, Alaska that can affect that coastline. How much warning do people typically get before a tsunami hits? And is it true that the water really recedes like a bunch before the tsunami? Yes, that can definitely occur during a tsunami. And it's one of the things that if you see that, you should clear out. Um, so in some cases for the Indian Ocean tsunami, um, you know, people in Thailand, Sumatra, places near where the earthquake source was, would have felt the shaking. So in some cases, the warning that you have for your tsunami is the earthquake shaking. Um, once you feel that, once you feel that the earthquake is lasting, you know, minutes, it's not just a brief shake, but it's lasting minutes. These subduction zone earthquakes can last up to six minutes long. Um, so the shaking just goes on and on. And at that point, you know that it was a really big earthquake on the fault. There are tsunami evacuation maps and hazard maps that you can find online and you can look and basically find your neighborhood and see if you're in the tsunami uh, hazard zone, what level, you know, there's different percentages. Let's see, you know, are you very likely to be inundated or, or really unlikely to be inundated and also find your evacuation route. So you grab your your kids, partner, your dog, and you would be prepared. So if you're on vacation in Thailand and, or Sumatra or anywhere in the Indian Ocean, you would have already thought about what you're going to do if in case of a tsunami or if you feel an earthquake or you get a tsunami warning. I always think like, girl, motorcycle or golf cart, get in like a little more mobile thing, you know, like, because like, what if you can't run like three or four miles if it's like all the way flat and there's no upward place to go? Okay, but uh, we got to stay focused. So before a tsunami reaches land, how does it form? Like, how many types of tsunamis could there be? Um, the, the the mechanism or the process that can make the biggest kind of tsunami is a subduction zone earthquake. And that's because these faults can be 1,000 kilometers long, five 600 kilometers long, uh, or sorry, five or 600 miles long. 
they can uh, displace a large amount of ocean floor and that's what basically pushes the water column up or down and sort of ripples out in this tsunami from that source. And so that's that's your biggest tsunami that can be generated. And these can be, you know, in some cases, 100 feet uh, high uh, when they reach inland, and especially when they get amplified in, into these bays or sort of narrow areas. Um, but you can also get uh, tsunamis that are generated by volcanic eruptions, like I mentioned, the Hungatanga. I mentioned that because it's one of the more recent tsunamis that was, you know, felt around the Pacific Rim. You can get landslide-generated tsunamis, uh, like the one that occurred in Latuya Bay in 1958 that made over a 1,000-foot tsunami in, in that bay. Luckily, there's not really anyone around, but that just wiped out all the trees on the, on the mountainsides there. That's how they could tell that it was a 1,000 feet tall because all the trees were wiped out up to a 1,000 feet on the fucking hill? Yes. Oh, my God. You can have glaciers that calve into the water and, and cause small tsunami waves. And then you can also have like uh, part of the meteorite impact that wiped out the dinosaurs. That also created a mega tsunami um, with it. I was going to ask that. I was going to ask that. <laughs> um, now, earlier you said with the subduction zone ones, I think, you know, because like, like, that's like subduction is like the plates that go up and down, right? Yeah, that's where you have one plate that's diving beneath the other. Mm. And um, it's deforming the upper plate, so it kind of drags the upper plate down. And then when the fault fails, it pops up. Mm. And that's when you displace the ocean floor and you, and you propagate that tsunami out. How long could a tsunami last? So the, once the water is you know, propagating out from those ripples, um, it's moving across the ocean, like I said, at four or 500 miles per hour. It's, the wave is quite small at that point. And once it reaches the coastline, the friction um, as the water starts to shallow, the coastline shallows, the tsunami starts to slow down, but the still moving quite quickly and sort of piles up on top. Um, so, but by the time it reaches the coastline, it's usually moving more like 30 or 40 miles per hour. Um, but at that point it gets much higher. So it goes from that, you know, one to three feet up to, it could be 30 to a hundred feet at the coast in extreme cases. Did you see that Naomi Watts movie? Wasn't it called like The Wave or like... Called The Impossible, I think. The Impossible. So you did see it, Tina, or you didn't? I did. <laughs> I did. You did. And from a literal doctor scientist, like expert of tsunamis, did you think it was like legit or like no? The way... Well, the, the tsunami impacting the coast is, is only a small part of the movie, right? Yeah. But the way they depicted that was, I thought pretty accurate. Um, so in in movies, we see the tsunamis as these huge cresting waves, you know, that look like you could surf on it. But really, it's a wall of water that comes in like a big high tide just rushing in. Um, and so that's pretty much how it was depicted in, in the movie, sort of washing into that resort and piling in. And it's not just a wave that comes in and then sort of sloshes around and and um, recedes quickly, it continues pushing because it's such a big, you know, wall of water. And that period of those waves is so long and it's traveling so fast that it just keeps pushing and pushing inland. Yeah, because I, I feel like in that movie, I haven't seen it for a minute, but I feel like I remember there being like six or seven waves. Like, wasn't the one in like the Thailand and like Indonesia, like Sumatra tsunami, like didn't that have like six or seven? Like there was a lot of... Yeah, I don't know the exact number, but it was, I that sounds reasonable to me. It could have been six or seven waves. It was a very large earthquake. I, I think 
Okay, I'll just tell you partly like how I became obsessed, right? I was minding my own business in WeHo in like 2011, or was it 10? I was minding my own business on my couch watching like Anderson Cooper or like Aaron Burnett, like on CNN. But when they started playing the footage of the tsunami, I was like, what the hell am I looking at? Like it didn't even, like it was insane. And ever since then, I've been like, fuck. I'm, and I lived in LA at the time. And I started like, you know, like obsessively Googling how close Culver City and like Venice where I worked was to the coastline. And I was like, oh my God, because I worked on Venice Beach. And I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, like there's going to fucking be one. And if I see that water recede, I, I'm like, I'm fucking running. I'm running. I'm grabbing everyone. We're running. <sighs> so that's when I became obsessed. Um, Let's talk about like uh, preparedness and like if you are in a fucking tsunami. So like, I've been in like two earthquakes when I lived in LA. And after one of them, I was like, I'm never going in an underground parking structure. And then every time I ever did, if I just like could not find parking, because like, obviously, I still went in them. But I was always like, how many joints do I have? And do I have bottled water in my back seat? Because if I get trapped down here, I need to smoke a fucking joint and I need to drink some water. I will just die so pissed and so thirsty. So I did always have water and joints in my car. Um, do we just need to make sure we have some like great non-perishables, like a sleeping bag, some walkie-talkies? And like, does that need to be like tied onto a go-kart, four-wheeler, golf cart, or motorcycle that's like if you live on the coast or just have like a really great plan? Um, yeah, like how do we survive one? Um, so if you're in a I've never heard of an earthquake kit with joint just joints and water. That's an amazing earthquake kit. <laughs> that was mine. I don't suggest it. I, I'm not a survivalist. I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't say that's a great kit, okay? I just is mine in my car, okay? It was not great. Fair, fair. Um, so if you're in an earthquake-prone area, I would. Uh, I'm not going to list everything to put in an earthquake kit, but there's definitely online resources that have suggestions of everything that you know your to cover your basic survival needs. Um, so in a tsunami-prone area, I would have a really clear evacuation plan. And so in the Pacific Northwest, they have drills where you know, people, there's basically, you know, directions that show you what streets to take to get out to the high point. Um, whether or not you do that running, walking within your car, or like you said, some kind of moped or four-wheeler might be more effective. Um, you know, in some cases in the Pacific Northwest, you could lose bridges. There could be some issues with people being stranded on, you know, spits, sand spits with, you know, no bridge access to the highlands. And so having some backup plan for, let's say that bridge is out, so I know I can cross here or, um, you know, a walking plan to, to complement any kind of like car evacuation as well. Um, but so just being familiar with your uh, earthquake or for your tsunami uh, evacuation maps for your area, uh, have a really clear go bag, you know, something that you grab and you just go if you feel shaking um, that or, and get a tsunami warning. Um, so that's essentially what you should do. Um, it's, it's such a, what if it's at nighttime and those shaking doesn't wake you up? Um, like, should you, is there like a, is there like a fire alarm, but like an earthquake alarm? That's like for, if you're sleeping, like it's like, bitch, it's shaking. You better wake up. Cause what if you're a deep sleeper? Yes. There's, there's a shake alert program that you can, um, there's an app you can download on your phone. You can get that alert that will override any kind of, you know, silence or anything you have on your phone. And so definitely the shake alert is going to uh, signal that there's imminent shaking and will hopefully wake you up um, and, and get your evacuation going. So definitely anyone in earthquake prone area that has access to something like shake alert, 
is really common in Japan. So when I was doing some research in Japan, uh, one day all of my colleagues' phones went off, started, you know, alarm bells started going off. Like, What's going on? And then seconds later, the earth, you know, was shaking a little bit. It was a small-ish earthquake, but it was really impressive to just see, you know, how efficient that alert was on the phone and everyone kind of knew what to do. They will have an estimate of the magnitude right away as well. Um, and so in that case, it wasn't a, a, you know, anything of concern. Um, and so definitely making sure you're subscribing to stuff like that and, and taking advantage of these early warning systems. Is a boat a cute escape plan or like it's risky? Like there's a risk factor if you don't get out far enough before the tsunami comes. Yeah, definitely a risky escape plan. I would not recommend. Last resort. That's like a last resort one. Yeah, yes. Last, last resort. Absolutely. Okay. Recently, I've been having some stomach problems. Everyone that I talked to recommended that I take a bunch of different supplements and vitamins, but it's kind of complicated to keep track of that many different pills and powders every day. So I decided to give AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that supports my gut health while also supporting my immune and brain health. AG1 covers my bases with high-quality ingredients like pre- and probiotics, adaptogens, antioxidants, and whole food-sourced nutrients. AG1 also replaces my multivitamin, my pre-slash-probiotic, and my supplements to support energy and focus. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com curious. That's drinkag1.com curious. Check it out. My makeup routine changes every day. Sometimes I'm giving you full glam, but sometimes I like a no-makeup makeup look or like literally just like almost literally no makeup. It just depends. Whether you like fresh-faced, full glam, or somewhere in between, there's a Thrive Cosmetics product for you. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. They're made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, they are high-performance, and they have uncompromising standards. One of my personal favorite products is the Brilliant Eye Brightener. I love this product because it can be used in so many different ways. It can be a highlighter stick that's made to brighten and open up your eyes. They support amazing causes, including the LGBTQIA plus community and racial and social justice. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com Curious. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C A U S E M E T I C S dot com slash curious for 20% off your first order. So, um, what about like what's paleo seismology? Uh, paleo seismology is um, what I specialize in. So, we use the coastal geology and the coastal stratigraphic and sedimentary record to look at past like prehistoric earthquakes and tsunamis that we don't have in our modern instrumental or historical record. And so our modern and historical record is quite limited. Um, we only have in most places, 100 to two or 300 years at the most where we understand uh, earthquakes and tsunamis that have occurred. And so with our techniques, we can look thousands of years into the past and we can start to get at how often they occur. So based on the layers that we see in the sediments, how often the earthquakes are occurring, 
and try to estimate the magnitude of the past earthquakes. And also, of course, the tsunamis that are coming along with the earthquakes. With the paleoseismology of it all, what do you search for when you're in the field? Do you, like, go out into, like, rock quarries and, like, take, like, how does that, how do you guys, like, do that cool research? Most of my work has taken place on subduction zones because that's where you get the largest tsunamis and the largest earthquakes. And those earthquakes, they can actually cause land level change along the coastline that can be recorded in the coastal geology. So we target areas like coastal marshes, so low energy depositional environments like salt marshes, um, intertidal marshes that have vegetation growing but are still inundated sometimes by tides. Um, and so when those types of environments are suddenly dropped down in an earthquake, so in the subduction zone earthquake, these environments can drop down from three to six feet, let's say. Mm. And that can all of a sudden change how the tides are interacting with these environments. They can change uh, an area that was vegetated before suddenly becomes a tidal flat, like a muddy tidal flat. And eventually that gets incorporated into the sediment record. And we see evidence of at the Cascadia subduction zone, for example, in the Pacific Northwest, we can get up to 11 or 12 earthquakes uh, just stacked in the sedimentary record. Um, and that's the land level change part of the story. But with these earthquakes often come tsunamis. And in that case, we look for evidence of these sand beds. So the tsunami washes in over these coastal environments, often beaches, sand dunes, uh, sand spits, and washes that all inland into these low energy depositional environments and leaves these sand beds. Mm. Uh, and so we see the evidence of both the land level change during the earthquake and the sand being deposited in the tsunami that comes 10 to you know, 10 minutes to an hour later. And we have, uh, you know, this record then of repeated earthquakes happening along the coast. And so you can tell the difference between like an earthquake that doesn't produce a tsunami because there's no sand thing right after it? Yes. We sometimes we find evidence of just the land level change and no tsunami. And that can be because the, that earthquake didn't generate a tsunami it can be just because of the, the place where we're coring and taking our samples uh, is in an area that, you know, is kind of protected or somehow the tsunami didn't reach. Mm. And so we have to think about that. Just what did the, so we call it paleotopography or the paleo environment look like at that time? And why might we not be seeing a tsunami there? I'm from this like little town in Illinois. And like when you drive to like St. Louis to go to the airport, you like drive on these roads that like, I'm pretty sure they had to like blast dynamite through these hills to like, you know, how like when you drive through those things and it's like big like cliffs on either side of you and you can see like all the, it's like limestone or whatever. Like how deep are the cores that you have to take? Do, like, do you guys take like a, just like a fucking gigantic hole puncher out there and just like fucking jackhammer it down there to get like a perfect cylinder up? Like how, do, or do you just like, cut off the side of a hill or something? How do you do it? We dig in the ground for it. So you're you're not off when you said that we, you know, basically ram a coring rod into the ground. Uh, it's a half cylinder um, barrel that we push down. And usually we go down about three or four meters, but sometimes we can go down up to six and a half or seven meters and recover, you know, the whole sedimentary record during that time. Uh, sometimes we do it manually, so we actually push down ourselves, twist around, pull it out, and uh, sometimes we use a vibracore that sort of you know, jiggles it down and, and can recover more sediment and get through sandy sediment and things that are harder to core through just with person power. What if when you take the core out, it just goes like, 
Like, what if it doesn't stay, like, solid? Or is it more rocky? It's not. It's quite soft. So we're looking at mud. Basically, we, you know, muddy sediment. It's quite wet because it's in these intertidal marshes and it's, the water table is quite high. Mm. It's, it's sometimes when we try to recover the sediment, it doesn't stay in the core barrel very well. And so we have to, we have a different coring um, tool that closes a sheath over the top of the half cylinder and sort of protects it. And that's easier to pull out. But once we get out of the top, let's say meter or so, where we, the top meter can be very uh, rooted and it, we call it peat. So it's like mm. all the organic plants that have been forming there have a you know, root mass and it's quite wet and that can be hard to recover. But once we get through that and we're in the more consolidated sand and silt and mud, it's easier to recover the corn and pull it out. So you've like worked in like Alaska, Chile, Japan and beyond like doing these doing the core stuff. Mm-hmm. What drew you to those places? Because they're like the most active subduction zones, right? Yeah. So we, so a lot of my PhD work took place in Chile and it was a place where we, before we started working there uh, with our Chilean colleagues, didn't have a lot of paleo seismology done. And so there were a lot of places where we could go and establish a new site and learn a lot about the earthquake records and tsunami records at the sites. And it also is a really good place to do this because it has a pretty complete historical record of um, tsunamis and earthquakes um, from Spanish settlers. Hmm. And so we had these coastal records that we were finding of these really distinct sand layers and land level change evidence that we could link to historical events. And then once we ran out of the historical events, we could we continued to see them even lower in the record. And so we were able to answer some questions like, um, you know, there's a big earthquake in Chile, the biggest earthquake ever recorded in 1960. It was a magnitude 9.5 and created a a large tsunami, killed uh, hundreds of people. And, um, you know, that earthquake really changed the coastline. It dropped those coastlines down. So just like I described in the, you know, earthquake cycle during an earthquake, the land suddenly drops down. And so a lot of the, the marshes that were organic marshes turned into tidal flats in Chile. You had, you know, severe tsunami impacts, erosion, and deposition of these sand beds everywhere. And so in Chile, you can actually find this evidence of the 1960 all over the place. And it's a really good example or analog to then use to then say, oh, we see this 2,000 years ago. It looks just just like 1960. So this is likely a predecessor of 1960. Um, They also had a really big earthquake in 2010, magnitude 8.8. there was a large tsunami that went along with it, and we can see traces of that along the coast as well. So it's a place where you can you have a recent history of these events that you can use to then sort of make better interpretations in the geologic record. You mentioned earlier the 1960 Chilean earthquake. Did I think you said hundreds of people died? Was that just even though it was the biggest? Was it just like not that populated or something in 1960, or they were just like lucky because there was like lots of mountains or something? Like were the Andes right there, so people could just be like, oh fuck, like let's get up here or Chile is an earthquake. Uh, it's very active, you know, earthquake-wise. So they they have them quite often. And so, you know, the people that felt shaking in 1960 knew what to do. They they knew to get to high ground. They had heard that from their, their grandparents, parents, grandparents. And so they had this generational knowledge that um, prepared them for that event and and got them out of harm's way. Um. So I feel like I really got a good idea and, like, picture of, like, how you're describing Chile. Like, um, is there any other, like, really cool, like, core historical stories that you've gained from, like, Japan or, like, Alaskan, like, sediments? 
Yeah, so our work in Alaska was really exciting because um, we went to some sites that had, you know, no previous, no prehistoric earthquake evidence recorded at them. And so, um, you know, in Alaska, you have another relatively recent big earthquake and tsunami in 1964, a 9.2, and that created widespread uh, land level change or subsidence of the coast. So the coast went down two to three meters in some cases, and in some areas, the coast popped up two to three meters, and in some isolated islands, it went up up to 10 meters. Um, so you have these other little faults that can go off with the subduction zone. They're called splay faults, and they're in the upper plate, and they can be triggered by the subduction zone, and that can cause things to you know displace even more. Um, and so that was sort of towards the east um, by Anchorage and then going towards Kodiak Island. But when you go west of Kodiak Island, sort of towards the Aleutian Islands, there just wasn't a lot of information about uh, earthquakes and tsunamis that had occurred there because historically there really there had been some, um, but uh, prehistorically we just didn't know what's going on. And the reason we care about that area is because it can produce tsunamis that propagate across the Pacific and hit the coast of, you know, could be the coast of Central America, North America, Chile. But it has been found that the tsunamis that originate in this part of Alaska make the biggest tsunami heights at, in Southern California. And so when you're thinking about these distant source you know, tsunamis that can affect California, this is the place to worry about, this um, just west of Kodiak Island in Alaska. And so we went out and we did um, our coring. We looked uh, for evidence of the land level change. We looked for evidence of tsunamis. And we found that historically, the way that the subduction zone has ruptured there doesn't really reflect how it is ruptured prehistorically. What determines if something is prehistoric or not? Like, how long ago is that cutoff? Like, like in your in your like for your doctor science paleo seismology field? Well, it depends on where you are. So, in some cases, the historical record, like in Chile, uh, goes back quite far. You have the Spanish settlers that were there that were writing things down that they need to report back and all this. So they actually have, would note. You know, in 1575, my farm was destroyed and my donkey fell over. There was an earthquake. You know, there's like really interesting historical accounts of, of shaking and or the water receded in this curious way. Or, you know, we have evidence that earthquakes and tsunamis have happened in the past. Um, and then there's there's other places um, like the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. where we have less written records. We have some oral histories of earthquakes and tsunamis, but we don't have any written records of of those events. And so we rely on the geologic record there to understand uh, what has gone on in the past. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money? Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous like two-bedroom suite instead of a one-bedroom suite so your like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your, your guys' room? Is it like really adulting? Oh! 
I love adulting. And you know what else I love? Is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Don't you just love when someone looks at you and says, what were you up to last night? Well, no matter how late you were up the night before, Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops can help your eyes look more refreshed and awake. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute to help your eyes look brighter and whiter for up to eight hours. No wonder it has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. You won't believe your eyes. You know you can trust them, though, because they're made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb, and they're backed by six clinical studies. Eye doctors trust them, too. They're the number one recommended redness reliever eye drop. The one and only Lumify is an amazing drop that will have people saying something's different about you in the best way possible. So check out LumifyEyes.com to learn more. How can your research help us predict future tsunamis? So the, you know, by expanding where our knowledge of where earthquakes and tsunamis have affected the coast in the past, we can then start to define areas that are in the hazard zone for the future and current and future. Um, And so by going out and doing these investigations, let's say in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. and Northern California, Oregon, Washington, by going out into these marshes, doing our coring investigations, mapping where we see tsunami deposits inland, mapping where we see coastal subsidence inland, we can start to define inundation areas for where future tsunamis might go. We can help inform tsunami hazard maps. And so we can put some bounds on, you know, the the possible inundation patterns that might occur. Um, So if we didn't have this information, we would kind of have to make an educated guess. But it's nice to be able to say, okay, you know, we in this location, we don't see any evidence of inundation past this certain point for any of these paleo events. Perhaps offshore, the earthquake displacement wasn't as great here. And then in areas where we see really strong evidence of tsunamis for multiple earthquakes into the past, we can say, okay, maybe the, this fault offshore here slipped a lot. And this is where we get a lot of displacement and a large tsunami. And then when we do these studies at 10, 20 sites along the coast, can start to really build a picture of what that earthquake looked like offshore. We can say where it's slipping more, where it's slipping less. And also all of our data really helps keep the modelers honest who are doing this work offshore. And they can't just start modeling, you know, magnitude 9.6s or something and totally obliterating the coast when our geologic evidence doesn't suggest that's possible. And likewise, we can make sure that they meet a certain you know, threshold, like your model needs to make the tsunami go at least as far inland. We see clear evidence that it's done that. And it just, the the back and forth between the two sort of specialties can start to really paint a vivid picture of what your earthquake can look like in the future offshore. Are there any areas of like particular concern that maybe we have mentioned, maybe we haven't mentioned uh, that is like just particular concern for your fellow researchers? Like do our like Portland and Seattle friends really need to make sure they got like a cute evacuation plan and just like all the West Coast? Yeah, um, I think, you know, one place that's, 
you know, of concern for me um, right now through my research and what we're seeing is the, the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. We have not had a big subduction zone rupture at Cascadia recently. The last rupture was in 1700 CE. And so about 300 years ago, um, the recurrence interval that we see in the geologic record for these events is in some cases as little as 300 years, in some cases more around 400, 500. But essentially you could get an earthquake at Cascadia subduction zone any day now. And because we haven't had one recently, because the Cascadia subduction zone doesn't have these smaller events like Chile does and Alaska, I sort of keep the population honest and prepared. I'm really concerned that the next event there is going to have a big impact um, on the populations along the coast, especially if it hits, for example, during the summer, you know, vacation season when you have large populations of people there that aren't normally don't normally live there and aren't as aware of a tsunami and earthquake threat. It could cause a really uh, bad situation. Is that like Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, like that area? Or is Cascadia like, where is that again? So Cascadia would stretch from uh, Northern California all the way to Vancouver Island, uh, Canada. Okay, mind blown. Um, How is sea level rise increasing the disaster threat? Just because there's like more fucking water. So if there's like an earthquake, there's like more water. So it's going to make bigger tsunamis. So sea level rise is, um, you know, going to increase the the threat of you know, storm surge inundation, tsunami inundation, even high tide flooding, these kinds of effects. And basically it's doing that by raising the baseline sea level that these events then act upon. Mm. And so we found that um, today you need a magnitude 9 or 9-1 to produce tsunami uh, heights in Southern California that are basically bigger than anything in the historical record. You need a quite large tsunami in Alaska to produce this distance source tsunami in LA that has significant effects at the port. But in 2100, you only need a magnitude eight to produce the same size tsunami at the ports of LA and Los Angeles because you've raised baseline sea level, you've made it more sensitive, you pile on water on top of already high water and you can get the same effects that you would get from a magnitude nine today. I think I'm like a genius about tsunamis now or something. Like, did we learn so much about tsunamis? Like, so <laughs> this is really cool. We were so excited. We were reading that you just received a massive grant from the National Science Foundation to conduct paleoseismic research along the Cascadia subduction zone. So identifying risks and concerns and taking action queen. Love to see it. Um, what do you hope to find there? How is this like how is this whole research project gonna work? Um, so it's this is an exciting new earthquake center. It's the Cascadia Region Earthquake Science Center, known as Crescent, and it's a few different universities: so University of Oregon, Oregon State, University of Washington, Virginia Tech, and it's bringing together um, all these subduction zone scientists to try to further our understanding of the Cascadia subduction zone. So, because it doesn't have very frequent events on it, it's it's poorly understood how the you know. The earthquake processes are going on, how we should be modeling future events. And so by bringing together the modeling community and the paleoseismology community and just getting our heads together, getting funding behind projects that we're working on, we're hoping to advance the knowledge and the science at Cascadia and just get a better handle on what is the next event going to look like and when can we expect it and how can we best prepare for it. 
And another really exciting thing about it is that we're trying to reach, you know, the public with this information. So we, we produce this scientific information and sometimes we don't always have a chance to communicate it to people that can actually do something with it, like stakeholders, um, you know, uh, community planners, the public. And so by having these opportunities through the center to interface with these folks, we're hoping that we'll increase the preparedness at Cascadia, despite it being so quiet right now. Um, and it's easy for people to sort of put it out of their minds. They have their daily concerns and everything. So to try to bring it more to the forefront and have everyone prepared for the for the next event. And so will that use like similar coring technology and you'll just like you guys will determine like what sites you want to go to and you would take cores from like, like basically like at the beach and then like 10 meters, 20, 30, 40, like, like, and like how far away from the beach would the sites go? And is it like, is it like miles north and south and then like a mile like inland? Yeah. Is that like how you guys determine like where you're going to core from? Yeah. So we, we try to stay in these intertidal coastal marshes that are going to record those ups and downs of the, of the earthquake cycle and of the tsunami inundation. Mm. But our plan through this project is we're going to hit sites in Northern California, Oregon, Washington, all the way up into Canada. Um, so we have quite a few personnel behind it. I have PhD students and master's students working on it. And yeah, we're gonna we're going out in October. We're gonna bring our coin equipment. We're going to target sites in uh, southern Oregon this time. We're gonna take our sediment cores. Uh, we're gonna conduct diatom analysis on those cores. And so what we do with the diatom analysis is basically reconstruct those paleo environments that we uh, are seeing changing during the earthquake cycle. And so the diatoms are really sensitive to inundation and salinity. And so when it goes from a fresher environment all of a sudden to a marine environment and an earthquake, those diatoms change and the species that are present change, the flora changes, and we can see that really distinctly down core. And then within tsunami deposits, we can see this chaotic, you know, assemblage of marine diatoms that are washed inland. And so part of our coring process is, you know, getting those sediments, cleaning them, getting rid of all the, um, the grains and the organic matter and leaving the diatom valves there and making these interpretations about how the paleo environment is changing in the past. How fucking fascinating is that? How long will you guys be doing that research for? We're going to be out in for this field work a month, but for we're going to be doing this over the next five years, and we're going to try to collect as much evidence as we can over multiple sites along the subduction zone. And when we do that, we can start to put together you know, do we see this paleo environmental change at the same time at multiple sites over hundreds of miles? And you can start to build, you know, a history of the earthquake that caused that paleo environmental change. And you can date it like we talked about and just start to build that earthquake history and how much each earthquake changed the environment um, and, and how far each tsunami reached inland and just get us really nice picture of, of what has happened in the past. So as you do this research, um, like as far as like what's next for you and how can we follow along the lab? Like, will you be like, will you like, like, could, will you post pictures on the gram and talk is what I'm saying. We, you guys got to get on, you got to get, are you on the gram or the talk so people can follow along? Because this is just so interesting. And I think you have like such a great, just, are you on there? Where can we get more of Tina? Tina? We're, um, so I'm not on TikTok. Should I be? Maybe. Yes. Um, I am on Instagram, but it's mostly pictures of my dog and my babies. Um, but I'm on, I'm on Twitter X for the time being. Don't know what's going to happen with that, but I'm on there as Diatom Dura. Um, I, we have a website, coastalhazardslab.com, where we po- post, um, you know, recent news and photos and papers and things. 
yeah, I feel like I, I do have room to grow in the social media space. Tsunami preparedness survival info on TikTok. Like, honey, there's a white space. Like, there, I don't know. And, and people love a disaster story on TikTok. You need to get, excuse my French, but get your ass on TikTok yesterday. People would live for it. And by the time this episode comes out, I'm going to need, I will brainstorm with you on like your TikTok content later because it's, it's, <laughs> I just, this is just so fascinating. And I'm so grateful that you took your time to teach us. Thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. I'm obsessed with you and your work. I did not mean to lecture you about getting on social media. At the end, I turned into my grandmother, Ann Oakley. I'm so sorry, RIP Ann. Uh, but you're amazing. And thank you so much. And y'all, if you've been obsessed with this episode, listen to our episodes with Marsha Allen on Groundwater, Sarah Aarons on Paleo Dust, and Diatoms, um, Chris Jackson on Volcanoes, Ashley Cabas on Earthquakes, Heather Randall on Dams, and Kathleen Johnson on Caves. It's all kind of relevant uh, with this episode if you guys want to get into your like geology, like earth science vibe with us and like survival. Um, but Dr. Tina Dura, thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. It was awesome. Thanks so much. Ah! You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. You can learn more about this week's guest and their area of expertise in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. You can follow us on Instagram at JBN. And can I just say our social work has been so good. We are just slaying over there. So give us that follow. You can catch us on here every Wednesday and make sure to tune in every Monday for alternating episodes of Curious Now and Pretty Curious. Still can't get enough, honey? Either can I. You can subscribe to Extra Curious on Apple Podcasts for commercial free listening and our subscription only show, Ask JVN, where we're talking sex, relationships, and so much more. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. Our engineer is Nathaniel McClure. Getting Curious is produced by me, Chris McClure, and Allison Weiss, with production support from Julie Carrillo, Ann Curry, and Chad Hall. 